You know, so when people tell me, no, I don't care about way of life. I just want this problem fixed. They're not for me and I'm not for them. Welcome to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and I've been a dog mom for over 20 years. On this podcast, we are going to celebrate the amazing parts of being a pet parent. We're going to navigate the challenges together and learn everything that dog moms and dog dads should know. I believe that dogs can show up in our lives as healers, as teachers, and as inspirations. And I can't wait to get started. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 88 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. You might have noticed that I freshened up the intro music, and I've been having some fun with that behind the scenes. I'm really excited for you to meet today's guest, Dr. Suha Azadine. She is an extremely accomplished woman who is a dog trainer from Canada and also has a PhD in organizational psychology and is a professor at the college level. We're going to talk to Suha today about her book, The Way of Life Method, How to Heal Your Relationship with Your Dog and Raise a Sound, Strong, and Spirited Companion at Any Age. But first, a quick word from one of our sponsors. It's February, and you know what that means. It's Pet Dental Health Month. I recently learned that 80% of our dogs over three years old have active dental or periodontal disease. And dental disease is actually a sign of other inflammation in the body and can be connected to everything from cardiovascular problems, kidney problems, diabetes, certain types of cancers, joint disease. Your dog's dental health actually can affect everything in their body. And you know that I am obsessed with finding the best and healthiest products for our dogs. So I was so excited to find out about teeth. That's right, teeth. Just a tiny spoonful of teeth powder in your dog's water bowl will make a huge improvement in your dog's dental health. It's the only thing that ever made my vet stop and go, hey, what did you do with Penny's teeth? They actually look so much better. So forget trying to figure out how to get your dog's teeth brushed without them biting you. Forget those sticks or green shoes. What you need is teeth powder, just a tiny amount in your dog's water bowl. And listeners of this podcast can save 20% on your teeth order with the code ADM. And you'll be on your way to a healthier smile for your dog without any anesthesia needed. Check out the link in the show notes to find out more about teeth and save 20% on your orders. Suha has an amazing story to share with us. She had this incredibly fascinating childhood growing up between Abu Dhabi and Lebanon. And while working with pets professionally was never ever on her radar earlier in her life, it was always something that she hoped she'd be able to do and have a dog when she was out on her own and finished with school. And then Suha shares with us an extremely vulnerable story that actually didn't even make it into her book about a challenging dog that she adopted with a former partner and how she feels like she spent so much of her life trying to redeem herself for everything that went wrong with that dog. And then Suha meets Maya. And Maya is the dog that changed everything for her. She knew right away that Maya was very spirited and going to be a challenge. 
And they spent five years trying to figure out their relationship. And then Suha goes on a journey where she meets these life-changing teachers and mentors that completely change the way that she has approached being a pet parent. And she calls her methodology the way of life. And this is so interesting. It's so unlike anything else that I've ever heard. It really is a whole philosophy on our expectations of our dogs and how we can best structure our life with our dogs. And she'll take us through the three different phases of the way of life method. And Suha's honest that this method isn't for everyone, but I looked at this as people who I know who've had really challenging relationships with their dogs. And if you just ever wish you could just like wipe the slate clean and start all over and do everything different, you can. And I think Suha's way of life method is going to be an incredible resource, particularly for those people who have a really difficult and challenging situation with their dog. I was really excited to learn about this. I'm always excited to have new resources and methodologies and philosophies in my back pocket. And as we've been introducing this new dog, Nessie, that my husband and I adopted, uh, I have kept in mind some of these exercises. And while we aren't following the way of life method to an exact T right this minute, I really like knowing that I have this as an option if I need to. And so I hope that you will be really excited to learn about this method Suha is incredibly brilliant. We're also going to dive into some of the mistakes that pet parents make, especially with socialization. I really love that part of our conversation too. I'm such a big proponent of setting our dogs up for success, and I think you're going to love this conversation. I can't wait for you to meet Suha Ezzedine. So we're here today with Suha Ezzedine. How are you today? I'm super. Thank you for having me, Erin. How are you? I am great. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have so much I want to talk to you about. I have pages and pages of notes here. (laughs) (laughs) So I always love starting off by asking about your childhood experiences with pets. Um, If you've ever heard the podcast before, most people know I did not grow up with pets. You know, I never had a dog until I was 25. And then suddenly it changed everything. (laughs) And so what did that look like for you? Yes, great question and great origin story. <laughs> I listened to your to, to your your very first recording where you tell us a little bit about how you got into dogs, and it resonated with me because I too, in some ways, am a latecomer to the world of dogs. And so, as a child, there were two parallel universes. There was my grandmother's home in the mountains of Lebanon, and there was my life in Abu Dhabi with my family my dad being an expat in Abu Dhabi, where we lived. And then we spent the summers at my grandmother's home where she was surrounded by animals, her dogs, her cats, her chickens, her vegetable garden. And it was a magical time for me every summer where she would take my little hand and walk me to the garden and the dogs were around and the cats were around. And then I would go back to my life in Abu Dhabi where for so many different reasons culturally, and it wasn't really where my family was at. We, you know, there was no discussion of having pets for a while. We lived with the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel of a good friend of the family. For a while we had cats, but having pets or living with pets or having a career with pets, that wasn't available to me. Academics were really emphasized. 
And then there were the summers, the magical summers at my grandmother's, where she made it look so easy to be around all these animals. You know, I never saw her train the way we train, you know, with clickers and such, or marking behavior, or, you know, I never saw her do anything like that. I never saw her, you know, take the animals into town or or socialize them or have people come and say hi to the dogs or cats or whatever. And at the same time, all these animals were incredibly friendly and welcoming and, and well-behaved, and they were just around organically. So she made it look so easy um, and, and, and magical. Uh, and I could see how all the animals gravitated towards her, loved being around her, loved being at her feet so easily without her doing anything. She exuded such an authority, which in many ways reminds me of my vet Sharon, whom I talk about in the book, who also had that magic and that gravitas and charisma or whatever words, you know, work for you. But you know what I mean, right? Where the animals just couldn't get enough of her. And despite all the years spent pursuing academics, all the way up to finishing my PhD in my late 20s, the idea of recreating that in my life uh, never really left. It was always there, the idea of living the way my grandmother lived with all these animals around making it look so easy. But I had to wait until I got to my late 20s and I was almost done with graduate school that I could contemplate uh, living with, uh, you know, with dogs in particular. And, uh, you know, my income was stable enough that I could, being out of grad school and and all of that, that, you know, my life was was about to get more steady in a way that I could, you know, welcome dogs into my life. And so that was the very first thing that I did when I graduated. You know, <laughs> my, my doctorate is, is seek a life with dogs. So uh, what is your PhD in? Yes, good question. I get that asked all the time because people are wondering if I've got a PhD in animal behavior. And the, the quick answer is that I don't have a PhD in animal behavior. I have a PhD in human behavior in organizations. So I was, you know, like I said at the time, I was not even close to considering a career in in, in dogs or anything. And I was going to graduate business school. You know, I was about to become a business school professor in particular studying the behavior of people in organizations and how to draw performance out of people in organizations. And so it's a fascinating field because you become an expert on behavior. And, you know, we're going to talk about Maya at some point, but while I was trying to figure out what the heck was going on with her and why was she giving me such a hard time and, you know, listening to what the trainers had to tell me about animal behavior. And meanwhile, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, when we're talking about human behavior, it's, it's a lot more multifaceted and a lot more complex than, you know, than what I'm hearing people tell me about my dog's behavior. So anyhow, this is about uh, organizational behaviors, the behavior of people in organizations, in particular work organizations. So this is where we get into things like motivation and learning and achievement and leaders and followers and, uh, you know, personality, attitudes, behavior. Um, you know, you become an expert on behavior because the, the aim is to draw out performance out of people for organizational performance. And in many ways, it is a field that I talk about a lot in my seminars, I draw on organizational behavior concepts in my seminars. I touch on organizational behavior in the book as well. And it's a fascinating field that in many ways I'm glad I got into 
um, and not gotten into animal behavior education because I found animal behavior education to be theoretically restricted to particular theoretical frameworks that are studied in organizational behavior. We study conditioning and and operant conditioning in organizational behavior and modeling and behavioral modeling, but there's a lot more to behavior than conditioning behavior, you know? And so uh, this field and my study of it has, has informed my dog training in, in immeasurable ways. Yeah. I thought that that was very interesting. And you touched on it in your book of just how what you were doing professionally seems on the surface so unrelated to, yes. you know, working with animals, but actually it really does translate a lot and how exactly. we kind of fall into these things, you know? Yes, absolutely. Because if you think about it, Aaron, our dogs are situated in an organization. They're situated in a family, in society, with certain cultural ideas. You know, for the longest time, our dogs served as workers. They had a function. Now they're primarily a companion and a family member. And I'm delighted about that. I don't have an issue at all with our dogs being our family. Like we, you and I talked before the recording about how they are members of our family, no doubt. But that change has not necessarily been easy for them because now they're located in this family with family dynamics and couple dynamics and the stresses of life in the 21st century that translate onto dogs, you know, the many mental health issues that we struggle with that translate onto dogs. So, so yeah, to understand their behavior by looking at the entire organization, the context you know, the, the background essentially for, for behavior is essential, I think, if we're going to better understand behavior and help our dogs that have behavioral issues, including our rescues. That's really a big driver for me is to help people better understand their rescues, you know. And so can you tell us about Maya? She was your first yeah. dog, right? She was not. She was, oh, okay. No, she was not my first dog. Oh, okay. Who was your first dog? Uh, my first dog dog was my ex-partner's dog that I lived with for a while, a Rottweiler named Jada. Um, and then he and I went on to adopt a dog together that I don't talk about in the book, actually, because it's just so painful to talk about that dog. I understand. You know, it's in many ways easier to talk about Maya because with Maya, I fixed it. But with that dog, I didn't, you know. So we adopt another Rottweiler called Jasmine. And we tried and tried with Jasmine with what we knew. But I didn't know enough to put my foot down um, and insist. I mean, that was 20 years ago. Um, and he, who uh, sounded that he had a lot more experience and that he'd grown up with dogs and knew what he was talking about, you know, kept saying that this dog was no good. And finally, you know, we returned the dog to the shelter and knowing the kind of shelter that it was, knowing now what I know, you know, knowing now what the kind of shelter that it is, there's no doubt in my mind, Aaron, that that dog was euthanized that same day that she was returned. Wow. But I thought that somehow she would be given another chance. But now I know how shelters work. And not all of them are able to do that. Many places are pounds right. and not shelters. And that was more like a pound. 
That failure drove a wedge in our relationship. And it wasn't long after that that I moved out and got the dog that would be mine, mine 100% called Drama. And I talk about him in my book also in the last chapter. And it was after him that Maya came. And so when she started to give me a great deal of challenges, I was not going to give up. That was not going to happen again. And in many ways, I continue to be haunted by that failure. But in many ways, I tell myself that I've redeemed myself over and over with Maya and the other dogs that came after her. And then hopefully the millions of dogs I want to help with this book. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Because, yeah, that wasn't in the book and I didn't realize that. But I think a lot of people can relate to that. And I think, you know, it's important to share that, that, there are times when, you know, maybe we do feel like a failure with our dogs. I knew my husband has a situation from his much younger days before we ever met where there was a, like a, a feeling of failure with a dog and, uh, and it still haunts him to this day, you know? And, and so I know other people too, who can relate to that. And so I, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you so much. And so you give a very vivid description in your book of Maya and the first time that you ever saw her. Can you share that with us? Yes, absolutely. I can, because it was a life-changing moment that I can still feel it right now, the feeling that I felt when she was just, like I say in the book, lunging out of the building like a bullet, big, strong, chesty, leggy girl, Black Shepherd and my, my delightful friend, Lori, who is, you know, petite woman uh, being pulled by Maya. And it was clear in that moment, Erin, that she was the one because she wasn't the first one that Lori had showed me that afternoon. I think we'd looked at three others and she had saved that one for last because I think she knew she would be very challenging for who I was at the time. And she wasn't wrong. Maya was a lot of dog for me, but it was very clear in that moment that she was going to be coming home with me. I knew that she was more than what I could handle, but in between the epic failure with Jasmine and then the great confidence that Rama gave me, being such a good dog, good between quotes, just being an easier to live with dog, that's it. A dog that, you know, I got to make mistakes with him. Maya wasn't going to take my mistakes. And because of that, like I say in the book, by many standards, he was the better dog, but she was the better teacher. And so I knew in that moment. And Lori kept saying, you know, she's going to be a challenge. She's been, you know, from a home to another. She's very strong. She's very headstrong. I said, oh, no, no, she's the one. And she even looked me straight up in my eyes. And, you know, it's almost like she also knew something in that moment. I have a a photo in the other room of my dog, Penny, and my husband put a quote on it that's from Winnie the Pooh that says, as soon as I saw you, I knew an adventure was going to happen. (laughs) Now, it was a challenging adventure. So you were asking about, you know, some of the challenges that I that I encountered with her. And I can certainly dive into those. You know, now that I know what I know, Erin, was it really the dog 
that was so troubled? Or was it my way of life that was incorrect and inappropriate for a dog with that background, for a dog that is new, for a dog who doesn't know me? So I basically transplant her from a shelter environment straight into a family with another dog and asking her to behave immediately. Whereas now that I know what I know and written what I wrote and coach what I coach, if I had set her up correctly with all of the aspects of the way of life that I talk about in the book, including socialization and space and boundaries and all that, all those aspects, would I have had such a hard time with her? I know that things would probably not have been 100% smooth with all this baggage. You know, I'm sure there would have been setbacks and, and a great deal of resistance on her part. But was it really the dog or my way of life? Now I know, now I know better. But at the time, with what I did and what I knew, extreme reactivity to other dogs. And because I was all into, you know, you got to socialize, socialize, socialize. And that that is what they told me. That's what trainers say you ought to do. That's what they, the folks at the shelter recommended. And so I had her around my friend Lori and, our, and her dogs and other friends and their dogs. And, and she was not taking well to it and, and even hurt a couple of those dogs that, I, that also haunt me, just like Jasmine haunts me, you know. Uh, and, and my friends were very magnanimous, you know, uh, and very patient and understanding, um, which, is, which is also something that, you know, I've worked over the years to make up for. Uh, but anyhow, and, and then outside of that, those spaces with other dogs, chronically anxious, um, would submissively urinate if I came near her, would pant, a lot of heavy panting, a lot of, you know, the, your, your telltale signs of anxiety, essentially, you know, pacing, panting, urinating, um, clearly looking unhappy. She would be at her happiest when we were in a structured training environment where she could shine and she was excellent at anything we did. That was the space where she was happy and connected, but nowhere else. Yeah. And it sounds like when I read all the different things that you tried, like these sound like reasonable efforts for people to make. You're trying to get her into sports. You're working, you know, with different trainers. Like, it's not like you were just like, I don't know. (laughs) Like you did things that seem reasonable to most people. For five years. It wasn't working. Yeah. For five years. That's a long time. (laughs) That is a long time. And so when she knew we were going to go on an adventure, it was not necessarily going to be a positive adventure at the start. Now it yielded, years of failure ended up yielding wonderful years of, of utter joy, the two of us, but it didn't start off that way. And yes, I did go looking for help. Absolutely. I was very diligent, very diligent owner. I'd wait all, I'd waited all those years and, and I was, I was going to do it right, you know? And so I went here, there and everywhere. And I, I remember going to, to this one flyball trainer that I was working with, lovely woman who, who, uh, you know, Colleen Marakovich, I'm going to say her name because she's just so so fantastic canine companions in Bainbridge, Pennsylvania, where I was in tears. I was in tears after, after the class because she'd done so well, but I knew we were about to go home and it was going to be a different dog. You know, and I said the behavior of the dog park and she's so bad at the dog park. Now I know, you know, dog parks are very problematic potentially. And, uh, 
you know, Colleen says to me, well, don't go to the dog park. Who needs the dog park? You know, and, 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 and it, it was almost like, you know, if the things that you're trying to do with her are not working, stop doing those things. That was ultimately the message I got, which was a very good message. You know, that if whatever it is you're trying is not paying off, question the method before you question the dog. Dismiss the limits of your understanding before you dismiss the dog. You know, but that's hard to do because you're thinking you're going to experts or you think you're trying what the culture is telling you, you know. So three things primarily, socialization and, you know, keep exposing her. You know, she's not been exposed and that's why she's reactive. Keep exposing her. Heavy exercise, which I did almost to the point of injury, whether it's bike rides, whether it's hiking, whether it's cycling, you know, the heavy hitting exercise, right? Um, which I think is also recommended for your breed of choice, right? Is that you got to exercise and exercise and mm -hmm. exercise. And well, there's a limit to that because then you can overstimulate, not to mention injure, you know, and then sport, which we did every kind of sport imaginable. And she was excellent in sport. But then what are, what, what are we doing outside of all these arenas? You know, and I tell my clients, what are we doing when we're not sporting? What are we doing when we're not out socializing? What's going on at home? You know, how are we running the show? Because the dog is just a reflection of how we're doing things, really. Like any living creature, we reflect our circumstance. Of course, we bring personality and, and, and you know, genetics to the table and whatever else, of course. But there's also this background that we don't talk about enough, I find. Yeah. So we tried all of those things for... For, for several years. I'm sort of laughing to myself because my husband and I have totally had a conversation where we've said, yeah, our dogs are a reflection of us. They're very <laughs> loving, but maybe not the most disciplined all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing, though. You know, you can be who you are. You know, the way of life method is not really about trying to change you as a person, but to try to make you understand that there's a way to organize your life for the dog that helps the dog tremendously. You know, that that is, I think, more powerful than any training because this is happening 24-7. The way of life is happening 24-7. And so there's passive training happening all the time. Um, that we don't account for when try to better understand a dog's behavior, in particular when it's problematic behavior that could cause someone to want to part with their dog or surrender their dog or, you know. You know, I, I had just tell, told you that we have re very recently, not even two weeks ago yet, yeah. uh, adopted a new dog into our home. And uh, one of the things, and I don't know if all dogs are this way, but she just seems particularly observant. Right. of everything in the surroundings. And yeah. it was reminding me, you know, I have a, a friend who has a young son and we were talking about, you know, how they're just sponges when they're three, four, five years old and they just yes. take in everything that, what, that, that you intend to, you know, and the things you don't necessarily intend for them to take in also yeah. about life. And, and I was like, and the dogs are the same way. <laughs> yes. And, and with the dogs, we have a chance to to, to manage what they learn by how we manage the way of life. 
You know what I mean? So if I see to it that my dog is never tackled by another dog, a loose dog, I manage the environment to make sure that doesn't happen. Because if my dog learns that he's never unfairly treated by another dog, I won't have a reactive dog. You know what I mean? Manage the environment and to prevent learning rather than trying to fix it. That's why I'm so big on being in charge of this way of life, especially at first, and then loosening up. Kind of like with children, we start off tight. We manage what they do. We protect them. We structure their their life. Now you're at school. Now you're doing chores. Now you're helping dad with this. Now you're helping mom with this. Now you're in bed. Now you're brushing your teeth, you know. And, and with dogs, we don't apply that same kind of structure, which they so crave, which we naturally apply to our own kids and which every animal in nature applies with their youngsters, where they manage them tight at first in nests, in dens, you know, and I talk about it in the book and rendezvous places with wolves where we contain these young ones, we manage them, we protect them, and then we expand their world. We don't do enough of that with dogs. Yeah, I always think it's interesting, the more and more that I've learned over, you know, the last 20-ish years, that we as a society have sort of like crazy expectations of dogs, that we expect them to know how to act in, you know, I've heard stories, you know, people at the shelter, you know, scream when they hear these things, like that somebody will adopt a dog and then immediately go to like a family barbecue. And then, you know, and then can't imagine why the dog ran away or or something. And we have these just really inappropriate expectations of, of dogs as a society. We do. And ultimately, if anxiety dictionary definition is apprehension at whether someone can fulfill expectations, then now we have a better understanding of why so many of our dogs are anxious. We have expectations that they can feel and that they know they can't fulfill on many levels. Yeah. And so tell us what was your turning point with Maya? Very good. So, you know, there were many events that had to happen for this change to happen. So three months after Maya came into my life, my father passed away very suddenly. And it was very challenging time. An additional reason why Maya's time with me was so difficult. We moved from the US to Canada. We were living in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, not too far from Baltimore. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everywhere that is. Yeah. And, um, and it, it was a big change. And during that time also, I started volunteering at my local shelter in the wake of the Pitbull ban. Talk about a school for handlers. Talk about a school for dog behavior. Truly unbelievable. Um, Not just the dogs. The dogs were great teachers, of course, but all the incredible handlers and volunteers. And you talk about it. I mean, you make friends for life. Yeah. You know, you make friends with people that you know, that you would not be friends with outside of that, that arena. They, they, they're so different, you know. But I also met a series of teachers that I talk about in the book, and they include life-changing mentor Sam Malatesta, who as a breeder of many, many years, was attuned to the behavior of the mother dog with her young ones. And because of that, was able to see the gap in between how a puppy is raised by his mother and how we do things 
throwing the dogs completely off because they can tell that's not what their mother would have done. You know, whereas if we try to do what the mother does, the dogs can, even if imperfectly, okay, admittedly, the dogs can still feel that on some level we get it. We get them. So he was a deep influence because he had nothing but good things to say about Maya and lots of things that he wanted me to change about me and how I did things with her, including the expectations that I had of her. You know, this shepherd, this black shepherd with so much, you know, power and presence. And here I'm, I'm trying to turn her into a pet. Hey, no wonder. I'd be rebelling just the same. She was born a shepherd. She wasn't born a pet. You know, becoming a pet is something I had to teach her like any other job. It's not something that genetically she was wired to know how to do. She's wired to love a worthy human. But to live in a 21st century North American pet society is difficult on many dogs. And it was very hard on her. You know, so there was Sam and there was also my life-changing herding teacher, Kathy Warner, such a badass. <laughs> Unbelievable. And I know she would love me saying this about her because to see her around her herding dogs and her stock was just unbelievable. It's magic. It's not just dog and human working. It's dog, human, and livestock working. And the dog is so high up in drive and working safely and harmoniously with this person and the livestock. And I wanted nothing but that for my own dogs. And she was a mentor for me also for 10 years. And then my teacher and veterinarian and mentor, Sharon Kopinak, the late Dr. Sharon Kopinak, accomplished horsewoman, um, traditionally trained vet, who for many reasons, including her indigenous roots, eventually went holistic uh, when it wasn't fashionable to talk about food, to talk about herbs, to talk about tinctures, to talk about lifestyle. And I was, you know, her protege for, for a long time. And I could see her vetting animals that did not want to get vet. I mean, we talk now about cooperative care, and it's, it's a very good thing that we have cooperative care going on. But there's also something to be said for the magic of the doctor, the magic of the physician, the magic of the healer. Uh, which I think the animals felt. And she was very patient, you know, with horses, cats, dogs that did not want to be examined, including one of mine. And and to see how, you know, I learned a lot from her. Um, so yeah, it was a combination of those three with Sam being really the, the, the primary influencer of this complete change in direction where it was many, many years of learning, learning, learning. And I I really succeeded with Maya. I mean, I just, I was desperate. And in many ways, people who resonate well with the way of life method are in many ways desperate because they would have gone the positive route. They would have gone the balanced route, tried the prongs, tried the head halters, tried the remote, which seems to be the latest thing we do these days is using remotes, tried medication. You know, they would have gone all around, tried sport, and have a mess, you know, they have a mess of a family situation because everyone's fighting over how to deal with this dog. Some want to part with the dog, some want to work with the dog. It's difficult. 
Um, and it takes a certain amount, I think, of despair to be more open to the idea that, well, if we change the situation, and we know that dogs reflect their situations, could we potentially save this? And very quickly, people see with this method, and I see it all the time, where you don't see immediate deep results, but you see immediate superficial results that you need more time to establish those results at a deeper level. But people immediately start to see that once they get a handle on their situation, the dog changes. You know, and I define in the book what the situation means. Yeah. So I was curious, you know, you're very clear that the way of life method is not something that is going to snap your fingers and tomorrow is going to seem like a whole different dog, that right. it's a dedication to shifting your way of life. Yes. And I was curious how people, clients that you work with take that in if yeah. they are people who are, you know, feeling in a desperate situation yes, and, and that there are other, or perhaps they've already run through all of the other, you know, people yeah. who think that they can manage it with a tool or a, you know, something. Yeah. So in, in terms of getting them to understand that they need to think a little bit differently, you mean, Aaron, or getting them to understand that this could take time? Yeah, I guess, how do they react to the fact that it could take time? And are yes. people willing to put that in? Yes, very good. So that's what I mean about the desperation is that the desperation can force people to understand that they need to do things a little bit differently and that those things could take time. So we talk a lot about how to, you know, when raising kids. So, parent, you know, my clients who have children, not all of them do, many of them are dog parents, but those with children, that resonates immediately when I say that the raising of these kids is going to take time, that they're not immediately going to produce the lovely, law-abiding, kind, compassionate adults that you're aiming for, right? It's going to take some time. And so it's the same with the dog, that it, it needs some time. Anything worth doing, anything of quality is going to take some time. And I also talked to them a little bit about changing their mind about the validity of some of the quick fixes that are branded these days, this tool this technique, this hack that's going to just fix it for you, you know, and I'll talk about the fact that us humans are complex and it's never just one thing that helps us. Same with the dogs. And we need time to heal from things or get good at becoming something. Same with the dog. They need some time to get good at becoming our pets or companions or family members. Because like I said, it's not necessarily a role um, that they're prepared for genetically or by background. You know, and then there's the idea that with the way of life, because you immediately start to, to, to take charge of the situation. And like I said a few moments ago, you're immediately able to see quick changes, quick results. That can have people feel more committed to the process because, and, and I tell, I say, I joke all the time that the dogs are going to prove me right. If you don't believe me, just believe the dogs, that they're going to show you how they're not fence running with the neighbor's dog anymore, how they're not whining in their crates anymore, how they're ignoring the dogs at a distance in, 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 in the neighborhood because you're doing everything that I'm telling you to do at home. 
the dogs are going to show you organically how they start to change because of the changes that you're making. And so that makes people feel very motivated where if at the beginning they weren't entirely sure, the dogs start to show them that there is value in what they're doing. And that was certainly my experience with Maya where very quickly she came around. I mean, it was six months where she was not only safe with other dogs, but she was awfully capable. This wonderful dog, six months is all that took. She was ready. I was ready. And this process is powerful. Should we all be able to walk off leash with our dog? Because that terrifies me. (laughs) (laughs) So great point. You know, one of the things that was so inspiring about Sam is how much he stressed the importance of raising dogs that can be free, that can be off leash. Now, of course, we live in a society at a certain time with laws, with congestion, with crime, with other things happening that make that not always a healthy proposition to have our dogs loose. Absolutely. But to the extent possible, where possible, I want to raise a dog that can be loose. You know, it's part of my obligation. So my obligation isn't just cure the food aggression or cure the reactivity to dogs or cure the aggression to kids. That's not enough for me. You know, so when people tell me, no, I don't care about way of life. I just want this problem fixed. They're not for me and I'm not for them. You know, my aim is to fix the issue, as I say, from the back end, from the inside out, by re-raising this dog or raising this dog if, if they're new to me on such solid foundations that it's the relationship that makes them want to stick around. They don't want to take off on me, not even for a deer or a squirrel. I mean, they might perk up. You're like, wow, I saw something. They might even take a few steps, but to leave the orbit of mama is not what they want to do. And if they're sound, that's why I say sound. When a dog is sound, Aaron, they can have all the instinct in the world, but there is a space in between stimuli and the dog reacting. Because the dog is thoughtful, you know, one of my girls is obsessed with squirrels, and she, but she can tell the difference between the squirrel in the yard and the squirrel across the street. The squirrel across the street does not interest her, you know? So building in that soundness and everything else that I talk about leads us to a place where we could have a dog off-leash capable. Now, how often we're able to enjoy that off-leash is another question, but my aim is to raise a dog that could handle it. And a human who trusts in that bond, the bond is the leash. And so once I have it, I don't need that leash anymore. They're the ones paying attention to me, Aaron, while I'm paying attention to the world for the both of us. Instead of having to police my dogs, they self-manage And I can police the world and make sure it's safe for them and us. And it's beautiful. You know, just yesterday, I did my first pack walk with five of my clients. And I had two of my girls with me. And I'm helping my clients with their dogs. And I think most of the time I was handling my clients' dogs and showing them a little bit, you know, helping them how to handle their dogs. And I hardly looked at my two girls. And they were loose. I hardly looked at them. And one was here and one was here and I'm able to do my work. 
with my back turned, you know, and it's fabulous for them and for me and for anyone who sees them and who knows that this is actually possible. Because what I tell people all the time is that if it's in these dogs, it is in your dogs. What is in the one is in the whole. So I'm sure that there are people who think, oh, I have a great bond with my dog. I mean, we curl up and watch TV together every night and I give him a little bit of food off my plate. Yes. But then the dog is like a total maniac, you know, (laughs) in other situations and, you know, is trying to bite the neighbor or, you know. That's exactly what I would say. I would say is the behavior consistent? You know, is your bond consistent across situations? Are they one thing in the house and then a whole other thing outside the house? That's not the case here. You know, stepping out the house is a non-issue. I still have the same dog, you know? And so that's, I will ask, how does that rapport carry when you're in other situations? The home is wonderful. I do have clients that have challenges inside the home. So it doesn't mean that inside the home is necessarily an easy space to master. So if you've got it good in the home, that's great. But I'm also asking what's happening elsewhere when you've got stimuli, when you've got people, when you've got, you know, things that are beyond your control, things that are clearly beyond the dog's control. They are creatures of turf. They understand now I'm at home, now I'm not. So how how does that sense of security and bond translate when they know they're not at home anymore? That would make me question the strength of your bond. I'm not saying the bond is not there. That's important to understand. I'm not saying the bond is not there, but I want rock solid. I want the kind of bond that I, the leash doesn't matter if I have it on or even a collar, you know? I know that's so hard to even imagine in this day and age, particularly in urban settings, but it is possible to have a dog that is so solid that they don't need your commands. They don't need your cues. They don't need your leash. You've raised them, you know, not long ago, I was at my scenting class and I had, my dog was loose right next to me as I was making my way to the car. And then I get into a conversation with, with a lovely lady over there and Nira, uh, you know, veered off from me a little bit and went to the grass that was not far from where we were talking. She knew I wasn't available and she wasn't going to go far. My friend goes after her. No, no, come back here. You know, and, you know, and she said, aren't you worried? And I said, no, I trust the dog I raised. So tell us a little bit more about your methodology. And, you know, in particular, I was so interested because, first of all, the first stage, even though a lot of times people think of it as being applicable to puppies only. You're right. saying it doesn't matter whether it's a rescue dog. doesn't matter if it's your dog that's been in your house for five years and you need to, you know, start over that like this first stage is kind of how you set the stage for moving forward at any age. Correct. Is that right? Correct. Excellent question. Because I get that a lot, Erin, where people think it's just with a puppy that you would start off structured and controlled. I'm saying no. I'm saying that's the way to start with any dog and any relationship is that you start simple and structured and controlled and you imprint yourself in doing that as, you know, the person that matters to your dog when you're ready to go out into the world. People adopt a dog on the Thursday, on the Friday, they're at the PetSmart, like you said, you know, 
And meanwhile, there's zero foundations. And who knows what this rescue dog have been through? I say that in the book that, you know, you have to volunteer at a shelter to understand the hyper socialization that takes place in shelters. Different handlers, different dog walkers, a different team of vet techs, you know, uh, feeding the dogs or giving them medication or whatever. Different adopters taking the dogs out for walks. Different dog walkers. The, the dog might have come from a number of different shelters where they would have experienced a number of different people. And then we bring them home and they're exhausted. And they've not had good sleep in months. And we expect good behavior, being social, not soiling your carpet. And meanwhile, this poor dog, this poor dog doesn't know us from Adam. This dog doesn't know that we love this dog, you know, and and that's something that I find so important to keep in mind. Our dog is a predatory animal. And that is something to cherish and respect, that they're not quick to make friendships, that they're selective in their dealings, that it takes them time to actually really care about someone because they care deeply. And their care doesn't come quickly. So here, not only am I putting pressure to perform on this dog, but I'm also asking him to quickly reciprocate my warm and fuzzy feelings, which he's not ready for or she's not ready for, you know? So this dog that comes to us new is stressed potentially, even if they came from a wonderful home or from a wonderful breeder. This is a new environment. This is a different space. Altogether, what what happens to us when we're in a different space? We regress. We lose some of our mojo, normal. So that's how they're feeling as well. And if there's a situation like with my dog, Maya, who'd lived with me for five years, and it was all behavioral issues and conflict for five years, well, she too, her development is not normal. Her development has been stunted and 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 undermined by years of anxiety. So I'm going to take her back to a simpler, gentler place where I'm not asking much of her. And as I say in the book, the girl slept for three weeks. When I brought back the crating and I brought back the scheduling and I took away the crazy socialization that was only upsetting her and making her feel like a failure, you know, She slept for weeks on end. And like I see in the book, it was the first time that I felt she and I had something going on, something pure and real. And I had made that happen because that's another thing that my people feel is that they made it happen, that it was their effort, their effort to create a schedule, their effort to say no to the friends who want to come visit the new dog, their effort to say, no, I can't have this dog meet this dog just yet, you know? So, so yes, that's it, Erin. Yeah, great question. I at least feel like we're getting the like scheduling and the keeping the world small and contained thing, right? That goes a long way. Huge. And if you can spend some time there before you bring in the world, the better off you'll be, you know, because what, what I want is that by the time I'm ready to go out there, the dog is like, well, I love you and I know you. And you have kept it safe for me since I've landed into your world. 
You've made it safe. You've made it successful. I'm game for anything you want to introduce me to. You know, with limits, of course, and within reason, you could have dogs that are more sensitive that need more time or dogs that you really don't want to be socializing with everybody. And that's okay too, right? But the, the, the point is that if I take my time at the beginning and I keep it simple and I keep it successful, like, I, you know, Sam used to say that, I say that all the time. The only things that your dog's got to hear in those early days, good dog, great job. So I'm only going to make sure that I put the dog in a situation where she can only do well, not put her in a situation where I have to have her behave, not put her in a situation where I have to correct her prematurely when I don't have anything with her. I have no relationship material with her, you know, to be correcting her or asking of her, period. You know, I hardly know this dog and I'm asking her already to behave for me. No, I'm going to give her a solid decompression. I'm going to spend time with her at Foundations where we're doing things simple, successful, where I describe in the book, we're working at the distal level of socialization. So we are ignoring things at a distance. We keep our space away from things. And if I cannot guarantee that, I try to not go to that space, you know, so I'm choosy with where I go at the beginning and the dog immediately gets it that, not immediately, I mean, they need time, like I said, but they get it that I'm a protector. I'm a protector and they can let their guard down and eventually protect me correctly. Not the fear and reactivity that people think is the dog protecting them. That is not the dog protecting you. Real protection is understated. It is not loud. It is not frantic, you know, and you can really see the difference between a dog that is just reacting out of fear versus a dog that is confidently standing his ground in a situation. Yeah. And I really like in the book how you break things down with like a sample schedule of what this would look oh, like God. at this stage and that you give different exercises yes. you know, for trust building at each stage and, and how to kind of graduate yes. on to the, the next one. Like I, that was extremely helpful for us. I'm glad. The book was meant to be, I'm, I'm a university professor, as you know, and so we're dealing with textbooks all the time and those big, thick textbooks with exercises and applications and questions and and yeah, and so I, I felt that I could write something like that that would serve as a manual for anybody. Really, the driver for the book was that trying to help the greatest number of people in the most accessible of ways. That and I was also spending way too much time trying to get people to think a little bit differently. Meanwhile, we needed to spend time practicing and doing hands-on things with the dogs, but I was spending so much time talking about the theory that is driving all of this. And so I said, I need to write a book. I need to write a manual that my clients can refer to, that people all over the world can refer to. And because it talks about things that you can do in your life, in your home, anyone, anywhere can benefit from this. You know, now there's, there's no replacement to working in person with someone and their dog, just because dogs are such physical creatures and it, it's so helpful to be there with the dog, but there's so much that people can do in the background, you know, with the way of life to, uh, you know, to make a difference. So I have some just general questions for yeah. you that I really appreciated your philosophy on. Uh, in the first one, we've talked about this word socialization yes. and how people think, you know, there are people anyway who think like, oh, you take them to the dog park. Yeah. Or, and, you know, and I see that and I'm horrified. And yes. of course, because we're 
pit bull people, uh, I guess we have always felt an extra layer of responsibility that we wouldn't want to take a pit bull dog to a dog park because if there was any kind of bad situation, we don't want it to be the pit bull's fault. Um, But in general, act against them. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, what is it like? How do we get socialization wrong, and what is proper socialization? Yeah, such a good question. And I hope I don't ruffle any feathers here, but you know, in science, there are trends and there are ways of thinking that become dominant and then are questioned and then are changed. You know, that happens all the time in science that we question our theoretical. Uh, understanding of the world. You know, someone puts out a theory, a bunch of us empirical researchers test it, you know, prove it, disprove it, find exceptions to it, and then new theories emerge. And some scholars refer to those as scientific revolutions. Well, my aim is to create a scientific revolution when it comes to socialization, because what's been advocated is so extreme, is so lacking in a clear methodology that people can follow that we know it's important, but at the same time, we have very little guidance on how to go about it. Yes. You know, I completely agree with that. Right. Suzanne Clothier, who, whom I, whom I adore is a, just such a wonderful. I've gotten to see her speak. Yeah, she's lovely. She's amazing. And, and I, I read her book when I was trying to deal with Maya all these years ago, and it was amazing in helping me appreciate that there was more to behavior than meets the eye, that there's a relationship that drives behavior. So anyhow, she has something called uh, a puppy socialization map, mindful and planned. So there, there are some approaches out there, but the, the, the idea that we need to socialize our dogs uh, the way that we do these days in dog parks and daycares and puppy meetups and breed meetups and whatever else, you know, meetups. Uh, it's like a friend of mine says, she says, it's a religion. It's become a religion. And so when you counter a religion, you're now the heretic, right? You're, uh, you know, you're, you're committing blasphemy. I'm, and there, there is a woman that I know about who says that I am dangerous, that this thinking is dangerous. Meanwhile, I'm not saying don't socialize your dog. I'm saying understand what socialization is. Understand that it goes through levels of difficulty, that it needs a foundation of relationship. I need to have that primordial relationship with my dog before I tell her it's okay for you to be touched by this groomer or a vet or a friend or a family member, you know, or it's okay for her to go say hi. Go say hi is one level of socialization, which I call interactional. But before that is another very important level of socialization. Ignore people. Right? If I'm taking public transportation with my dog, is that a good place for my dog to go say hi? I don't think so. And I I live in one of the few cities in the world where dogs are allowed on public transportation. So I have a responsibility for their behavior, you know? So what's the default? My default is dogs and people are to be ignored until I make them relevant. I make them relevant by saying, those are our family. Those are our friends. Go say hi when the time comes, but they know I'm the safe base. Like I said, at the beginning, I'm, 
attachment is what drives me. I've become a safe base for this dog to come back to. So she can go out into the world and say hi to people and meet people, but she's got me. And so saying hi to everyone is not that important anymore for her. She's like, oh, hi. Now, of course, some dogs are very social. I have one who can't get enough of being pat and touched and whatever. But in general, if they have that solid foundation with you, socializing with everybody is not something they want. They want their family. They want friends. They don't want to play with random dogs at the dog park. You know, they want to play with their friends that they would have been introduced to gradually, the way of life way, you know, gradually. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with saying we want our dogs socialized, exposed to the world, but there's a time to do it. My stage two is called exposure. That's how I understand socialization. It's exposure, which may or may not involve interaction, right? And, and I talk about the oppositional level of socialization. That's where the dog's space feels invaded, So when I socialize a dog I barely know and I have my friends say hi and touch him or her, because the dog does not have yet that primordial socialization with me, those interactions could be experienced as intrusive and stressful. And ultimately, it's stress that drives reactivity and a lot of the behavior that we're seeing these days. So like I said, There's nothing wrong with thinking about socialization. There's just a way to go about it. And more importantly, let's understand what it means and why we're doing it. Yeah, so I hope it makes sense now, right, about why we've been getting it wrong, because it made its way into the culture without the requisite understanding of what it means. And so I hope that in my book, I, I add some nuance to what it means to socialize and help people understand that when I bring this new dog home and I'm creating him and I'm giving him solo time and I'm keeping things simple and we're keeping it successful, we're working in quiet areas and all of that, you know, that too is socialization. That is socialization. You know, it's not strangers all the time, right? Or other dogs necessarily or immediately, they will come. And I talk in the book about how you introduce your dog to another dog at stage one and then at stage two and then at stage three. You know, when I have a stage one dog that I'm just getting started with, I keep it at a distance, right? My stage three dogs that are integrated come with me to visit clients. And and, and the, the introductions are quick, but they are stage three finished dogs that I know will not have inappropriate reactions to my client's dogs. You know, and if anything might show me what's really going on with these clients' dogs because they're so non-reactive, you know? Yeah. Let's talk about crate training real yes. quick because I, I appreciated how much you talk about that in the book and how, yes. you know, sometimes I think people, I don't know, think it's like punishment or that it's negative. It's so unfortunate. And uh, and I will admit, we our, our past dog, Penny, wasn't a fan of the crate, and we respected that, but we could put her in, like, a room, you know, yeah. uh, that was her room if we needed yeah. to, you know. Um, yes. So can you talk to us about the crate training? So I wrote a blog, actually, about where I say why I crate and don't crate train, <laughs> which simply means that when I bring a new dog home, I just crate them, you know. Uh, crate training suggests that you're letting the dog discover the crate and 
decide whether they like it or not and go in as they please. That's one way to do it. But when you do that, it's almost like you're saying, this is a scary, painful thing that I want you to get used to. Um, and meanwhile, I'm saying, you know, creating is part of your life with me. And it's no different than putting a baby to bed. It is no different than, um, you know, telling your kids to go to their room. It is the space for the dog where, as I say, it is black and white. They do not need to perform for us because I'm making it clear they can switch off with me closing the door, making it black and white. Now is your time to rest. I don't even talk to dogs when they're created. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, because actually I have learned that if they know I can talk to them, they think they can talk to me. And then I get barking, whining, (laughs) demands. Now that's okay if I've got a a more finished dog, Erin, right? If I've got a more finished dog in the crate whining and I'm like, okay, maybe I will take you out. You know, it is time for us to go out anyway. But if I have a new dog, I don't give them a lot of choice. I make choices because I'm thinking of them as a juvenile in stage one. And they want me. To, 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 to take charge of things. And then as they adjust and learn and we start to shift, they will have a lot more freedom. And that's the intention, right? We were talking about that a few moments ago is giving them freedom, but I cannot give them freedom, Erin, unless I start from a place that is structured, from a place that is regulated. A crate is not the same thing as the dog having a bed. You know, if they have a bed and they hear something outside, two seconds, they're on the couch barking at what's going on outside. Am I right? Absolutely. If I give them a room, they can pace around the room and pace and pace and pace and not settle. You know, and some of my herding dogs that are put in situations like these really struggle because they are control or be controlled kinds of dogs. And so they're like, what am I supposed to do with this big space? But if I put them in a crate, it's clear. You sleep here. And they are able to get the rest that they so crave because another one of my deep beliefs is that life with us in this century is taxing. You know, they have to deal with our emotions, our stresses, our our anxieties over whatever. And, And they're in the middle of all of it and they never get to switch off. So if I create them for some of the time, that lets them recuperate and recover and therefore be less you know, wired and, and, and likely to react to things because if nothing else, they're lacking good sleep, you know? Um, and it's very unfortunate that people who are, you know, certified dog trainers who have platforms, who, you know, are, are considered authorities continue to, you know, talk about this message that creating is cruel. We create a lot. Now there's no doubt that some people use crates cruelly, as punishment, as, you know, timeout, as, you know, uh, where the dog is contained there all day in, in smaller than appropriate crates. I mean, there's all sorts of inappropriate use of the crate. That there's no doubt. But there's also very good uses of the crate. You know, when you've got people over, when you've got workers over, when you've got a new foster that you're not sure whether he's going to be safe around anything. I'm, I'm making sure my guys are safe. You know, I've got a dog recovering from illness. You know, my girl, one of my girls had, had to have a, a big cancerous, luckily not, not a bad cancer, not the kind that spreads rapidly, but she had to have a tumor removed 
uh, two years ago, I think it was. And I got a picture from the tech about how my girl looked in the module at the clinic while she was waiting for her surgery. It looked like it was no trouble for her at all. And, and that is part of my job is to help this dog deal with whatever life could throw at us. And whether it's an emergency, whether it's hospitalization, whether it's travel, boarding, whatever situations, I have a responsibility to make sure my dogs are okay being contained. Not to mention all the value that it creates in terms of rearing that I talk about in the book, because you're controlling the dog's learning environment. You're not saying, okay, here's the good learning that we do in class. And then here's all the other bad learning that you're picking up passively because I'm not containing you properly. That really undermines our credibility in their eyes. You know, when we get upset because they're doing things that we've allowed because we didn't regulate. Meanwhile, they come from animals that it's baked in their genetics that they regulate. Wolf parenting, it's hands-on parenting. They are there. And if it's not mom and dad, it's aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters from last year's litter. They are so involved and it's magical how, how they do things. They're very careful, and it's about a year before these cubs are integrated into the pack. So the dogs understand, I think, on some level, the idea of postponing their inclusion until they're ready. And they want to work for it, too. That's another thing. They want to earn their place. And when everything is given freely, easily, it's hugely demotivating and depressing. You know, and alone a reason why so many struggle. Yeah. What about the people who say, like, well, dogs aren't wolves? Yeah, great, great point. And I talk about that in the book. You know, they are not wolves. Wolves are not dogs and dogs are not wolves. But anyone who's been around dogs, they see the wolf in there. They see it. They are not completely separate species. They have more in common than they don't. You know, one key difference is that wolves will do for their own what dogs will do for us. But the loyalty, the love, the understanding that relationship takes time, I think that's all inherited. You know, the other problem with that is the denial of their predatory canine nature. Because by saying, well, they're not wolves, okay, can you at least remember that they're a dog? If wolf is too much for you, can you remember that they are a dog, that the, before they were their pet, your pet, and the agenda that you gave them, the role that you gave them, and how you imagined the perfect life with them? Are you remembering the dog that they are? You know, I have a saying, forget the dog that they are, and they will remind you of the wolf they once were. So what I'm saying is that if I remember that they're a dog and I manage them accordingly, I design a way of life that makes sense to a dog, they never need to remind me. Because in many ways, aggression and resource guarding and possessing over toys and territoriality is in many ways primal dog behavior. Right. Primal wolf behavior. Right. So I want to keep that beast dormant 
and bring him up when I need him in herding, when I need him in scenting, when I need him in tracking. But otherwise, in the rest of life, I want I want that beast calm and and happy and not having to remind me that they're a dog, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you have any favorite, other than Maya, any yeah. favorite success stories? Oh, my gosh, so many. Um, because this method is powerful, you know. Right now, I'm dealing with a set of clients, and I love to share their story because we met very, uh, uh, you know, it, it was very serendipitous how we met and coincidental. I love gardening. That's another one of my passions. And in the recent years, I've been just passionate about native gardening, uh, you know, native planting, where it's, it's just a whole other culture of, of gardening. And, you know, it's more ecological, it's more sustainable. I mean, there's many reasons why we are going native with gardening. And so I, I hired this company and here comes this, this young man and we start talking about uh, gardening and whatever else. And he saw my dogs minding their own business with the gate open and the doors open and, you know, and, and they're like, oh, hi. And, you know, and we're talking shepherds here, you know, that we're just so, oh, hey, you know. And here one thing led to another and he started to tell me about their dog and they have a dog that just recently turned two years. Often that's when we start to see the problems, right? In the months in between innocent puppyhood and then that early adulthood where they had tried multiple trainers, including the positive trainers, including the trainers that recommended prongs and so on. Not only was she tremendously reactive, but also um, very anxious in the home, barking at nothing, barking at nothing, you know, just standing there and barking at nothing that they could tell was going on. Very hard life. And they were really exploring serious rehoming options. Um, and then once he explained everything to me and I said to him, well, no wonder you've been having a hard time because <laughs> you're doing everything that the culture is telling you to do. And you're also explaining the behavior in ways that we tend to explain behavior. So they said, well, she came from a, a, a native reserve. And, and often the neglect or the lack of attention or the overpopulation of animals that could happen in these places, sometimes, not always, could make people feel that that was a traumatic time. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. But with the way of life method, you're not only doing things differently, you're thinking differently. And so when I'm, you know, I tend to be more of the idea that, yeah, trauma happened in the past and we have the power to do something about it in the present. So if you remember the healing power of the way of life method, you will see that there was a good dog there just waiting for you to get your act together. Um, and we started to work together. They tossed out the prong. They tossed out everything else that they'd been doing. And it's really unbelievable how this dog and the family. Now, I'm thrilled for the dog. Don't get me wrong. That's why I'm doing this. But it's when the humans are thrilled that they not only are avoiding what my client said to me, the shame inducing of rehoming my dog. Not only did you help me avoid that, but I got 10 times the dog I thought she was. Because you really discover who they are when they're not stressed because someone is handling them correctly. You know, I say the dog is like this fire that we are entrusted with. 
And if I don't manage this fire well by managing my fireplace well and keeping the fire where it needs to be and handling that fire safely, that fire is going to burn down my house. Meanwhile, if I manage it safely, that fire is going to keep me nice and warm and toasty. So I have a responsibility to manage this force that is a dog, you know, this fire that is a dog. So this family, I, I mean, I'm just, I saw her yesterday and we did a, a pack walk with, with her dog. First time around other dogs after quite a bit of time of distal, just at a distance. And she just took it like it was nothing, you know, it's stressful because there were a couple that had a hard time, you know, but, uh, she did very well and the family is thrilled. So yeah, I don't talk about her in the book. We were still a work in progress, but there's many success stories in the book with different breeds and different reasons why the dogs had difficulty and different families where it's the same process. Make it simple, make it successful, get back out there into the world with solid foundations, explore the world gradually, successfully go back to foundations if things are getting to be difficult, and then based on success at exposure, integrate your dog more and more and more into your home and into your heart. Now, we love them. We adore them. But my dogs always know that they can work for more love because there's always more to give, you know. And that makes them feel that they're constantly achieving and seeking and being rewarded for their drive. Yeah. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It's really wonderful. It's been so wonderful hearing you talk about this. Thank I appreciate your time. Thank you. Where can people go to find out more and to get the book? Yes, absolutely. So to find out about all the retailers that are selling the book online, go to thewayoflifemethod.com. If you are an audiobook fan like I am, thewayoflifemethod.com slash audiobook. Okay, okay. great. For uh, my training, uh, end of things, that would be wayoflifedogtraining.com. I would love for people to join my mailing list to get to find out more about events coming up, blogs, updates, etc. by signing up to wayoflifedogtraining.com slash newsletter. Um, so yeah, that is, that is where I can be found. Wonderful. I'll make sure we have links to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you, Erin. Thank you for having me. Did you know that February is also National Canine Cancer Prevention Month? The statistics for cancer in our dogs are kind of unbelievable. Around one in three dogs will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lives. And if your dog is over the age of 10 years old, that number goes to one in two or 50%. Pretty much every pet parent I know, including myself several times now, have been affected by a canine cancer diagnosis in our lives. And have you ever wondered if there was just a way to give yourself some peace of mind about whether your dog might have cancer or not? I know I have, and I was surprised to learn that there's now a test that does just this. In fact, over on the Alternative Dog Moms podcast, Kimberly and I got to talk with the founder of a test called Oncotect. And this is the first at-home kit that you can order yourself. You don't have to go through your veterinarian, but they will coordinate with your veterinarian on the results. So you can just order this kit, submit a urine sample, and find out whether your dog has a low risk, a moderate risk, or a high risk of having some kind of cancer in their body. I was fascinated by this, and I'm going to be trying this with my dog Nino, so I'm sure that you'll be hearing about it. 
If you'd like to find out more, I'll have a link in the show notes so you can check out Oncotect. And I'm incredibly excited to share with you that if you want to check Oncotect out for your dog, you can save 15% on your orders with the code BELIEVEINDOG. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I hope you enjoyed hearing about Suha's way of life method as much as I did. The book is incredibly fascinating. I love how many different exercises that there are for the different stages. And a lot of them are about building the bond with you and your dog and introducing them to the world at a safe pace where they won't be stressed out or overwhelmed or overly aroused. So of course, I'll have links for you in the show notes. If you want to check out Suha's website and learn more about her and the way of life method, she has some really great resources, like some freebie downloads for you also about help for reactive dogs. And there's another one that I love that's called Let's Fix This, 10 steps that you can take right now to address just about any behavioral issue. So you can check out her book, her website. She does these monthly webinars. If you want to do like a deep dive within a group of people on Zoom to learn about the three stages of the way of life method, and you can work with her virtually. There's a lot of different ways that you can learn from Suha and learn about the way of life method. And that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.